BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And welcome to the Water Cooler, everybody. Hope you had a great weekend. I'm David Brody. It is Monday, May 3rd, 2021, and we have an official proclamation from the 45th president of the United States. Can we have some official sounding music, please? guy. Is that Mitt Romney? Sorry. Uh, thank you, by the way. Uh, hear ye, hear ye, lords and ladies, I give you the following pronouncement from Donald John Trump, the 45th president of the United States and head of Magination. It is written as follows. This is what he says. The fraudulent presidential election of 2020 will be from this day forth. <laughs> so I can't even do it with a straight face. Known as the big lie. There you have it. POTUS 45 has spoken and trust me, tens of millions of people in this fair land agree with him. And that's where we begin today. The state of the GOP, it is MAGA-dominated. And if you don't believe me, ask Mitt Romney. Let's listen to some of that because there were boos for Mitt Romney this weekend. He felt the fury of MAGA when he was showered with boos at the Utah State GOP convention. Uh, but hey, congratulations, Mitt Romney, because, you know, he really has worked tirelessly to earn those boos since Donald Trump became president. Look, folks, MAGA's the base. Romney isn't in touch with MAGA at all, and it's that plain and simple. Then there's Liz Cheney. Uh, that fist bump with Biden at the joint address uh, is a visual that pretty much says it all. Uh, at any moment, she may be voted out of House GOP leadership. There's a movement afoot to do just that. It's like we're all on pins and needles. I haven't had this much anticipation since the night before my bar mitzvah, Temple Emanuel in New York. Anyhow, the MAGA victories continue this weekend, by the way. Donald Trump endorsed Susan Wright. In this weekend's jungle primary in Texas's sixth congressional district, and lo and behold, guess what? She came in first. And by the way, the anti-Trump Republican in the race, Michael Wood, no relation to Lynn Wood, trust me on that one, uh, came in ninth, so draw your own conclusions. And folks, by the way, Wood was endorsed by the infamous anti-Trump congressman, Adam Kinzinger, so a double whammy for those trying to defeat Trump and MAGA. So where do we begin this week? Well, we have a strengthened MAGA movement and a GOP in an excellent position to take back control of at least the House, maybe the Senate. The question, though, for Republicans will be how much MAGA is too MAGA and will it come back to haunt them in the suburbs? And can they stay united or does it even matter? Let's discuss all of this with my good friend Rick Klein, political director with ABC News. Rick, good to see you. Hey, David. Good to be with you. Well, look, MAGA definitely got some momentum this weekend in Texas. And that Romney episode, we didn't hear it there, but there were boos and boos in Utah. It really does speak volumes as to what's happening here. Yeah, look, if there's a Republican civil war, uh, then and Donald Trump keeps winning round after round. And sometimes uh, he's not even that involved. Uh, he, obviously, the Utah convention happened without uh, his particular involvement, and they still had the boos. Um, the Liz Cheney moment, uh, as you said, speak for itself. But it comes as she has sort of dug in on her position that Donald Trump doesn't have a position in the future of the party. And in that Texas race, I agree with you. The headline, of course, is that uh, Susan Wright, who's the widow of a congressman who died of, of COVID-related 
complications. Uh, she's first in that race. But yeah, the fact that the anti-Trump Republican ends up with about 3% of the vote in that distant ninth place, uh, that was a big whiff by anti-Trump Republican forces. So uh, look, you know, Trump is as strong as he has uh, been in some time, uh, three months or so after uh, after leaving office. He is a, a major force inside the Republican Party. And you see that play out at state, local and national levels almost every day. You know what's interesting here, Rick? Liz Cheney out today with a statement saying, you know, no, it's not the big lie. I mean, he's wrong. And of course, we expected that. But leave it to Trump to provide not just a demarcation line, but this is a, in essence, a line in the sand, if you will, in the GOP ranks. In other words, now every Republican member is going to be asked, so do, so do you think it's the big lie? Do you think it's the big I mean, it, this puts a Republican, the Republicans, they're going to have to go on record, basically, to either agree with Trump or disagree on this new language, the big lie. Yeah, and it comes at a time where you're just beginning to see Republicans come to terms with how to handle that exactly. Even some who have supported uh, the efforts to overturn the election results uh, back on January 6th, uh, they've changed their tune a little bit and started to say, well, it wouldn't have actually uh, changed the full Im impact of the election. Even Kevin McCarthy has said that. And, and you're right. I think by Trump trying to co-opt that quote unquote big lie language, it forces the issue back into the conversation. It gives fresh fodder to it. And it's possible that it becomes a litmus test for Republicans vying for the Trump endorsement and maybe trying to win a primary. Do you or do you not believe that uh, that, that Joe Biden was rightfully uh, and fairly elected president? So where does this leave Kevin McCarthy? I mean, it just seems like Liz Cheney is kind of begging him to, <laughs> to do something here. I mean, McCarthy's got to figure this out pretty quick. He can't let this fester, I would think. No, and I'll tell you, there's there's members of, of Kevin McCarthy's conference that want to bring another vote sometime this month to try to strip her of her leadership position. She survived that vote a, a few months ago. Uh, but this, their feeling is that, you know, if you're going to continue to, to, to poke your eye or poke our eyes uh, out over this, then, uh, then we're going to have to have some kind of retribution because you want someone in leadership that speaks for where the party is. And it's a tough situation because Liz Cheney, uh, knew exactly what she was doing when she cast that vote for impeachment. She knows what she's doing now when she continues to say that Donald Trump should not be a force in the party moving forward. But the, 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 the way that these members of Congress are responding, as you say, the MAGA base is very strong with them. I know it's just uh, whatever it is, May of 2021. Who knows what day it is today? Anyhow, but May of 2021, and we've got a while to the midterms, but we've talked to Kevin McCarthy, who was on the show a couple of weeks ago. He said 10 out of 10 that they're going to take back the House. Uh, Nathan Gonzalez, uh, you know Nathan, uh, he's been on this show uh, many times from inside elections saying uh, that it's it would be a major disappointment if Republicans did not win back the House. What, what's your sense there in terms of at least the terrain we are in right now in terms of Republicans potentially winning in the midterms in 2022? Yeah, they've got history on their side. Uh, the opposition party almost always has major gains in the first midterm. Uh, and uh, all of the recent presidents have lost control of Congress at some point. They also have um, redistricting uh, as well as reapportionment on, on their side and these incredibly narrow margins. You just need uh, basically three additional Republicans elected and ousting Democrats or replacing Democrats. And you have the majority. So the conventional wisdom will remain for some time that it's Republicans to lose. But, you know, it's also capable of uh, they're also capable of losing it. You never know what's going to happen when you go out there. There are some high risk bets that are being made, not just siding with Trump, but also opposing the Biden agenda, portions of which are pretty popular out there. So uh, it leaves it leaves Democrats in a position where they feel like they're governing almost on borrowed time. They have to get what they can get done as quickly as possible. And Republicans worried about um, overstepping worried about getting in their own way. And fights like this are just not productive. This is not where Republicans want to be spending their time in 2021 or 2022 fighting amongst themselves. They'd much rather take the fight to Democrats and pick up those seats that they need.
You, you know, you make an interesting point about the Biden agenda because, you know, I harp on this show all the time about uh, liberals or excuse me, I just really say the Biden administration could be, in essence, overplaying their hand on everything from critical race theory to 1619 project and, you know, all the culture war stuff. But plus, you know, just just a lot of the, the, the uh, commission to study court packing or they wouldn't call it court packing, but uh, to see what to do with the court. So you put all that together and you wonder if that's going to come back to haunt them. But you're saying that there are por portions of this of this agenda that actually could help Biden here is what you're saying. Yeah, if you, if you poll specifically on infrastructure, if you poll on should corporations and rich people pay more in taxes, uh, those are incredibly popular. His handling of the COVID-19 response and the rollout of the vaccine remains overwhelmingly popular. And every Republican, of course, voted against that relief package. So Republicans have had no trouble uniting against the Biden agenda. But there is some risk there. We have a, a president who uh, remains more, uh, more popular than he's unpopular in this country, uh, including with independence, and is doing things that have some backing in the public. And you're right, there's things that, uh, that the progressive left would push too far on. Uh, I happen to think the court, you know, the court packing thing is, is actually more of a punt than anything else. I don't think he's going to go anywhere yeah. with it. But the fact that it's not dismissed out of hand is a, is a talking point, and there's lots of them like it. But uh, it, it doesn't mean that there's no risk in, involved in this, that uh, Republicans could be seen uh, as trying to obstruct the Biden agenda. And the country is at a time of a little more optimism. Things are, things are on the move. The country's opening up. People are making plans. People are doing things, seeing people. Uh, and a lot of them are going to thank Biden and this administration for it. Yeah, and as we wrap up on the unity question, I mean, I think everybody, even as critics, can agree that, you know, th this has been a progressive push. No, I don't think anybody expected it to be this progressive this quickly by Biden. I guess the question is on unity. When did the, I'm just wondering when the, uh, uh, when it changed as it relates to what unity means. I always thought unity meant kind of bringing both parties together, at least having some bipartisan support in D.C., but it seems to me like now the, the White House is framing unity as if it's got 51 percent in polling or, you know, if Republicans are okay with it in the polls, then that then Biden is all for unity. Is it, that seems like a change of the goalpost there a little bit. Well, I think they, they've redefined a bit bipartisanship. I, you know, I've always thought about mm. it means Republicans are going to vote for something. They're saying, well, if Republican voters are for something, it doesn't matter whether they're in Congress or not. That's definitely different. But look, I, you know, all presidents mm. talk about unity. Donald Trump talked about unity mm -hmm. uh, and, and certainly didn't govern like it. Uh, and I think, you know, people will people will make the judgments about whether Biden is violating campaign pledges. I think he made pretty clear last week uh, that he wants to work with Republicans, but that there are limits to patience and that he's going to say that, uh, that that not acting is not going to be an option. And, and I think you're right in terms of how he's balancing his identity as a president. He's leaning more into the area of doing big things, even if that means he's not going to get Republican support. Well, we'll see if it comes back to haunt him in 2022. Uh, Rick, really appreciate you being here. Thank you, sir. Thanks, David. All right. Rick Klein, ABC News political director. Uh, you know what? If you look up level head in the dictionary, there he is. Rick Klein, not just his head. I mean, literally his whole whatever, the torso, the whole thing. But anyhow, Rick Klein, we appreciate him here uh, on the water cooler. All right. Coming next, Alan Dershowitz will be here to talk about the Rudy Giuliani uh, case. He's representing Giuliani. Uh, he's called it a few things like uh, he called the United States a banana republic because of the way they handled uh, the DOJ, the way they handled this whole case. We'll talk about that in a moment. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. 
Welcome back to The Water Cooler, everybody. Censorship in America. It is heavy. It is front and center. We're going to talk about that in a moment. Also, we're going to talk about Rudy Giuliani and some of his uh, legal, uh, potential legal troubles along the way, uh, all with uh, our next guest. He is a host of the podcast called The Dur Show. Love that podcast. Uh, Alan Dershowitz, also uh, author of the book, uh, The Case Against the New Censorship. That just out. Uh, Alan Dershowitz, Dershowitz, excuse me, joining us here on The Water Cool. Alan, great to have you, sir. Always a pleasure to be on with you. I really enjoy your show. Thanks, Alan. Um, so I want to get to the book in a moment. I've got to get to Giuliani first. Uh, you're involved in the case. Uh, what do you make of what the government is, is doing here and the tactics that have been used? Well, I just want all of your viewers and listeners to imagine that they had a deep, dark secret, a family problem, and they had really only one person they could trust it to. So they go to their priest or their rabbi or their psychologist or their cardiologist, and they disclose the deepest, darkest secrets that they don't want anybody, anybody ever to hear. And then they find out that the United States government has searched the homes of their psychiatrist, their rabbi, their priest, and the government has all of these documents and they've read them. They've read them. They have a taint team reading them. Can you imagine how you would feel if the government had access to your most private information? You know, the Fourth Amendment is supposed to protect that. And in this case, the Fourth Amendment didn't protect it. So talk to me about what this means as it relates to the, the legality of search warrants in this case, as opposed to subpoenas, which would be the normal way to go. Right, Alan? Well, the subpoena is the way to always go when you have a lawyer who has privileged information or a psychiatrist or a rabbi or a priest. You always go by subpoena. What is a subpoena? It's a legal document saying, turn over your cell phones and your computers. You don't have to turn it over. At that point, he goes to court with his lawyer and says, no, I can give you this cell phone, but I can't give you that one because that has notes with my client or my penitent or my patient. Mm -hmm. And then the judge decides, the government doesn't decide unilaterally, then listen to it and watch it, and then decide what to turn over to other prosecutors. That's the way to go. The attorney general should have authorized a subpoena, not a search warrant, and the judge should have authorized the subpoena. Judges should ask as the first question, why can't you get a subpoena? Are you worried there's going to be destruction of evidence? Right. Giuliani has known about this for months. He, if he's destroyed evidence, he's already destroyed it. What's the basis for a search warrant as distinguished from a subpoena? I don't think they would have gotten a, a real answer. Alan, everybody uh, that, that he sees this, especially on the conservative side, will say this is politics, that, 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 that this is, in essence, kind of a pseudo witch hunt, if you will. Well, I don't know about that. I know I have great faith in the Attorney General of the United States. He's a real decent guy. I remember him as a student at Harvard. Uh, he was a great judge. And um, I think he just made a mistake. He should not have done this. Maybe there was a lot of pressure on him. I'm not ready to jump conclusions about the Attorney General or about the judge. I will state my conclusion that I think they were wrong. Uh, I can, without bragging, I know more about the Fourth Amendment than either of them does. I've studied it at great length. I've litigated dozens and dozens of cases. I've won many cases on the Fourth Amendment. And I can say with great confidence that uh, the spirit, the letter, the history go by subpoena. If you need a search warrant, justify it. If it's a terrorist, a mafia guy, a drug dealer, okay, they'll destroy evidence. But a distinguished lawyer, former number two man at the Justice Department, former U.S. attorney, is not going to go around obstructing justice and destroying evidence. And if he were, he's already done it. 
So right. there's no basis for a search warrant in this uh, case. Alan, your new book, The Case Against the New Censorship, uh, not only an important book at any time in our nation's history, but especially now. Can you talk to us about uh, the, the importance of this book, why people need to understand what's happening in America today? Okay, look, for 50 years I've been litigating First Amendment cases and winning almost all of them. Why? Because the First Amendment protects speech from censorship by the government. But now something new has happened. Now the censorship isn't coming from the government. It's coming from big tech. It's coming from Google and it's coming from Facebook. It's coming from YouTube. It's coming from Twitter. And they have First Amendment rights. And so it's much, much harder to win these cases. It's much harder to protect our right of free speech against big tech. It's also much harder to protect it against universities, private universities, which censor speech all the time. And so um, I just wanted to make sure that I wrote the first book, really, that um, states the case for how we can go about fighting against these private censors. I mean, the other reason it's so hard to fight against them is they're decent people. There are children. There are grandchildren. There are friends' children. There are friends. They believe in censoring bad speech and hate speech and all of that. And um, it's much harder to fight against good people than against bad people. The fight against McCarthyism was easy. McCarthy was a drunk and he was a bum. Yeah. These are good people who have good values. They believe in equality. And as uh, I think it was Justice Brandeis said over 100 years ago, the greatest dangers to liberty lurk in people of zeal, well-meaning, but without understanding. And I think a lot of the millennials that are seeking censorship today and the professors just lack a deep understanding of the need for the marketplace of ideas at a time like this. It makes me think of Section 230. I'm not saying the, the end or the changing of Section 230 is the be-all, end-all here, but clearly these, these companies like Facebook, Twitter, and all that, they, they don't feel, they're not going to feel any sort of pressure unless something's done uh, in that regard, yes? Yeah, and I have a section on 230, and I think there ought to be a box that you check off. Either your uh, platform, in which case you can't censor, or you're a publisher, in which case you don't get the benefit of 230. But you can't censor and at the same time get the benefit of 230. Right. That's what I And as we finish up here, I got to uh, ask you about this Florida bill. Uh, down in Florida, apparently, uh, and there it is, they're, they're actually going to hit social media companies with huge fines if they deplatform political candidates. In essence, it seems to me like this is a, also a federalism issue at this point. In other words, states taking it into their own hands. Your, your thoughts? I don't think that would be constitutional. I don't think you can find companies for exercising their free speech rights. There are better ways of addressing this problem than by the government going after private companies. It's very difficult. Justice Thomas wrote a very thoughtful hmm. opinion recently about ways of possibly doing this. And it's, it's worth studying. It's very much worth studying, but we don't have a perfect solution. I develop a lot of these issues in my book, and I hope people will read it and come to their own conclusions. Mm -hmm. Alan Dershowitz, uh, really appreciate your time. And once again, the name of the book, uh, The Case Against the New Censorship. Uh, Alan, thanks for being here. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having your show. Yeah. All right. Alan Dershowitz, always uh, a, a, not only a breath of fresh air, but uh, someone we really do respect. Uh, look, you're not going to agree with all of his opinions. That's OK. Uh, that's why we live in America. It's called free speech is what he would argue for sure. Uh, all right, when we come back, uh, a lot more on the show, including Joe Biden and his Catholicism. Back in a moment.
Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome back to the Water Cooler, everybody. Uh, Virginia, they are uh, going to pick very soon here in just the next few days uh, their candidate for governor on the Republican side. Uh, who will it be? Well, I'll tell you what, one candidate just got a big boost and a big endorsement. Uh, let's take a look uh, at that because Ted Cruz has come out uh, for Glenn Youngkin. Uh, there it is. As a matter of fact, Glenn Youngkin uh, running for governor in Virginia says we're running the most dynamic grassroots campaign Virginia has ever seen. It's going to be a lot of fun to have. There it is. Senator Ted Cruz join me on the trail this week. Republicans coming together and know I'm a leader they can trust to a win in November. So let's discuss that and a whole lot more with that's right, Glenn Youngkin. Uh, Glenn, thanks for being here on The Water Cooler. Great to be with you, David. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, you're there in southwest Virginia. You've got a very busy day, a very busy week, and you've been really, uh, i tell you what, the activity is really ramped up. Uh, tell us the status of, of wh where you think your campaign is at and how confident you are that you're going you're gonna to emerge from this field. It's a crowded field. Well, we started 14 weeks ago, and we've covered 21,000 miles. We've met tens of thousands of Virginians, and we're out in front now. And we're out in front because we've been spending time listening to Virginians' issues. We've actually put together a campaign that, in fact, demonstrates to everybody that we can and will win. We're talking about the right issues that are on Virginians' hearts. And I think people have a huge amount of confidence that we're going to win in November. And that's why our campaign's out in front. That's why we expect to win on Saturday and then turn around and take on Kerry McAuliffe or whoever else they send our way from the Democrats and win in November and get our Commonwealth back. Glenn, you say we're out in front now. What's the empirical data? Why do you believe that you're out in front? Uh, there will be other candidates that may think that they have a, a just as good of a shot and they might say they're out in front. Why, why do you say that? Well, we've had a couple gubernatorial forums and and there's been straw polls after each one of them. And the one at Liberty University, I ended up with 47% of the first place votes. And the next candidate had kind of 25. And then we had the Faith and Freedom Forum just a week ago Sunday. And I ended up with 61% of the votes. And the rest of the candidate, the second place candidate, had 25. We've had 17,500 delegates sign up to support us uh, on the convention. And the momentum is big. The events are more crowded than I've ever seen. And this endorsement from Senator Cruz was really a shot in the arm for the campaign. And we just look forward to campaigning with him this week and taking this home on Saturday. There are certain uh, candidates in the uh, race who are kind of either backing away from Donald Trump or not full throttle, don't, don't have the full throttle embrace. Where are you on that scale? Are you full throttling uh, Donald Trump in terms of a big bear hug? Yeah, you know, President Trump taught us a ton. And his policies were square right where, where America needs to go. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a Virginia first policy when I'm governor. We're going to protect our constitutional rights. We're going to stand up for law enforcement. We're going to get our schools open. We're actually going to redo curriculum and, and uh, not have critical race theory in our schools. But we are going to have accelerated math classes. We are going to offer advanced diplomas. 
And oh, by the way, we're going to have the, the uh, 4th of July and uh, the Pledge of Allegiance is a critical part of what holds us together as Americans and Virginians. And well, so we're going to get Virginia moving again. And this is why Virginians are so excited about our campaign, because they not only know that we can win, but the path forward for a new day in Virginia is one that all Virginians are embracing. Well, let's drill down a little bit on the curriculum. So you mentioned the Pledge of Allegiance and Fourth of July. You, so my understanding is that now that is potentially uh, could potentially be rid of in the curriculum. And there's there's an effort to do away with that as well. Is that correct? Yeah, it's just stunning to me. I feel like I, I woke up on April Fool's Day or something because because what the Northam administration is pushing, and, and by the way, Terry McAuliffe is going to pick this up and run with it if he's elected as well, which is to actually put all of our kids in the slow lane, not allow them to run as fast as they can and, and fulfill their aspirations and dreams. But on top of that, remove some of the core foundational elements of America from the curriculum. And that includes the crazy idea that the 4th of July and the Pledge of Allegiance are not items in our history that actually unite us. And so these are the kinds of these are the kinds of crazy things that someone who's a common sense Virginian just shakes their head at. And that's why I'm running. That's why I quit my job last summer. That's why I stepped into this race is because I'm just so frustrated with where Terry McAuliffe and Ralph Northam have taken Virginia. That's why Virginians are standing up and locking arms. And this is why we're going to win in November and put our Commonwealth back where she belongs as the best state in America to live, work, and raise a family. Glenn, how do you see the Judeo-Christian fabric of this country? There are a lot of traditional conservatives, many Christians in this country, uh, who believe we have gotten away from the basic Judeo-Christian traditional uh, foundation of this country. Where, where do you uh, come in on that specifically as it relates to your campaign? Well, my faith guides me every day, and it's where I actually start my mornings, it's where I start my decisions. And when I'm serving Virginians as governor, I think they can have a real trust in at least the framework that I'm gonna bring the decisions. You know, someone asked me on a call recently, we do these teletown halls and we had about 4,000 people on it. And a woman from Chesterfield County asked me how I was gonna bring my faith into the governor's office. And I told her that I was gonna start every morning like I do today in prayer. And I think that's the place where all Virginians who, who have a faith, should start, and I'm gonna invite other people to join me. And so I do believe that that foundation for my life, where I start my days, where I look to for guidance and support and strength, um, is a great place for a governor to start, because it's a tough job. Yeah, It's a tough job, and we've got a lot to accomplish. And I know that with uh, with my faith at, this, at the center of what I do, I can get it accomplished. Glenn, as we wrap up here, what has happened to Virginia? It's gone from red to purple to blue. Uh, how do Republicans get back, uh, get the state back? Well, the, the biggest problem we've had is the Republican Party has forgotten that the way we win is by growing our party. We actually need to win through addition and multiplication, not through subtraction and division. And as I've traveled around Virginia, what I hear from all Virginians is a set of shared values around jobs and the economy, around our constitution, around our schools, around law enforcement. These issues are universal issues. They're not Republican issues. And yet the Republican Party, sadly, has not had a statewide leader in a long time. We actually have fragmented. And I'm going to bring us together. And I'm going to bring the Republican Party together. I'm going to bring Virginians together. And we are going to chart out a new day for the Commonwealth. And I cannot wait to go yeah. work for all Virginians 
to go work for all Virginians as the next governor. Glenn Youngkin, really a pleasure to have you today. Good luck, and especially good luck, what is it, May 8th, I believe. May 8th, I think. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Hope everybody shows up and vote early. <laughs> all right, there he goes. Vote early. His last and final words here on The Water Cooler. Actually, not his final words, because he'll have a lot to say this week on the campaign trail with Ted Cruz. All right, back in a moment with Joe Biden and the abortion issue. <laughs> Stand by on that. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome back to the water cooler, everybody. Uh, Joe Biden, Catholicism, abortion. What's wrong with that picture? All right, sorry. I said it. Uh, but anyhow, there are a lot of people who have an issue with uh, Joe Biden's Catholicism as it relates to his support for uh, abortion. And let's be honest, uh, if there's partial birth abortion laws out there that, that are OK with it, he will sign it. He's OK with it. Uh, so let's put up this uh, article uh, from the uh, ever glowing uh, Biden loving Washington Post. They say Biden's abortion rights stance triggers coming debate among Catholic bishops on communion. Uh, I want to discuss that uh, further, actually, with Matthew Bunsen. Uh, Matthew Bunsen is with us uh, with EWTN, uh, the executive editor over there. Uh, Matthew, great to have you back on the show, sir. Good to be with you. Well, what is the coming debate? Why don't you frame this for our audience? Because in essence, I, I think at one point that article in The Washington Post even called Joe Biden very Catholic. I didn't, I didn't know you could be very Catholic or Catholic or kind of Catholic. Uh, anyhow, that's a whole nother issue. But tell me what's happening here. Well, we can add too that uh, Jen Psaki, the uh, White House spokesperson, when asked in particular by EWTN News Nightly's uh, White House correspondent Owen Jensen about uh, the, the contradiction in uh, the fact that Joe Biden is Catholic and, and is executing and promoting policies that are contrary, directly contrary to teaching of the church, her response typically is uh, that she wants to remind everyone that Joe Biden is, quote, a devout Catholic who goes to mass. So this is uh, consistent that we have seen not just uh, in The Washington Post and Associated Press and elsewhere, but this is something that the White House itself, the, the Biden administration itself advances. Yeah. So what, so, this, uh, yeah, go ahead. Is, mm -hmm. what this is pointing to uh, is uh, a problem that we've had with uh, Catholic politicians going all the way back uh, to Mario Cuomo in 1984. Uh, in which uh, self-professed or professed Catholics, uh, such as Mario Cuomo, John Kerry, uh, Nancy Pelosi, and now, of course, Joe Biden, who's the second Catholic president in the history of the country, uh, publicly state uh, and make performative actions uh, that they are Catholic, and yet they hold positions that are completely contrary to the teachings of the church on some of the key issues of our time, including the preeminent one, uh, as the bishops of the United States have called it, abortion. Yeah. So then the question becomes, what's going to happen here exactly? Because I understand the, uh, uh, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops is going to at least uh, touch on this matter, bring it up in June at, at, their, at a meeting, I understand. Well, what this has uh, sparked uh, really from the moment that Joe Biden became a serious candidate for president in 2020 uh, and then right after his inauguration, uh, how the bishops are going to deal with uh, the issue of the second Catholic president who advances policies that are contrary to the teachings of the church. And uh, different bishops are weighing in on whether or not uh, he should be denied communion. Now, this actually raises a much wider question 
Uh, and that is, uh, should Catholic politicians who do hold these beliefs uh, that are contrary to the teachings of the church and do them very publicly, should this uh, sort of bring about a document from the bishops on how to deal with these Catholic politicians? It's complicated from the standpoint of church law uh, because uh, the president in this case, President Joe Biden, has uh, two bishops who really are his shepherd. The one is Cardinal Wilton Gregory of Washington, and the other uh, is uh, coming out of Wilmington, Delaware. Uh, a new bishop is going to be installed there, a Bishop Koenig. Uh, so they're going to have to make the decision whether or not to enforce uh, canon law in this case, uh, or whether they're going to allow Biden to continue to receive communion. So that it's, that's one complication. The other is that the bishops feel that they have an obligation to speak out on this because it is causing so much confusion and potential scandal among the faithful. Talk to me a little bit within the, the, the Catholic community. Uh, obviously, it's a yeah. wide community, a broad community, uh, and I know social justice plays a, a big part mm -hmm. of it in terms of certain a certain portion of Catholics. But but what does it mean when, when, when a Catholic like Biden is what he would call himself as pro-choice? What it, what is the um, What's the scuttlebutt within the Catholic community about people that call themselves pro-choice? I mean, is there not disdain, but is there a what's the view? What's the feeling? What's the relationships like between uh, what are the conversations like between Catholics on this? Well, uh, in our recent polling, for example, WTN News with Real Clear Opinion Research, we found that uh, Catholics themselves are somewhat divided on the issue of abortion. There is a percentage, a fairly large percentage of uh, Catholics who actually support uh, the legalization of abortion. Now, Catholics, by an overwhelming majority, uh, favor restrictions on abortion. And it goes back uh, to one of the keys to that is that the, the more you more often you go to mass, the more likely you are to oppose abortion and that you would prefer to see Catholic politicians actually living the faith. Uh, it's not enough in the view of most Catholics to say that, well, I am personally opposed to abortion, but uh, I will do nothing to try to oppose it uh, in public policy. And that's certainly something that uh, we see in, in the policies of Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi that while Joe Biden says that he's personally opposed to abortion, he is advocating what I think we can safely say is the most radical pro-abortion agenda uh, in American history. Mm -hmm. So for Catholics, uh, this is a polarizing issue uh, as it is within the rest of the country. But for Catholics, this is especially acute uh, as the bishops recognize because it can and is leading a lot of Catholics into confusion and even scandal, as I was saying. So their obligation then uh, as bishops is to teach clearly uh, on this matter. And we are starting to see a number of bishops uh, coming out very publicly to talk about this. So I'm assuming this would hurt. Obviously, this hurts the Catholic Church because of, of this idea that, A, anything goes, and B, you're just letting, you know, what, what, what are we standing for exactly then? Exactly. And, and this goes back to the, the term that's coming into use is the Eucharistic coherence. Uh, that uh, if you are presenting yourself uh, for communion, which for Catholics is the most important sacrament, it is the, the heart is, it is the most significant act that we can do as Catholics uh, to have a Catholic who is presenting himself or herself for communion while publicly uh, in open dissent the teachings of the church. Uh, this is a source of confusion for people. And for the bishops, this is a teaching moment. Uh, it's, it's an important teaching moment, I think, for them uh, to have someone who is now the most prominent Catholic, probably in the world, 
in Joe Biden, certainly the most prominent lay Catholic, or as somebody described him, the world's most prominent parishioner, hmm. uh, to be presenting himself in this way uh, is the source of confusion. For sure. Matthew Bunsen, really appreciate your time. Thanks for clearing a lot of this up today. Thank you. Good to be with you. Yeah, great to see you again. Uh, appreciate that. Uh, look, I mean, it's true. Uh, there's a lot of confusion. And uh, I'll be honest with you, uh, Joe Biden has put down quite a bit of confusion, not just on this issue, but a lot of others. What about unity? We talked about unity. He said he wanted to be a unifier. He's done the exact opposite. So uh, the hypocrisy uh, runs amok, uh, for sure, uh, with this uh, president. All right, we're back in a moment with the last sip. Caitlyn Jenner. Back in a moment. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at Skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Welcome back to the Water Cool, everybody. Time for ching. It's a sound effect. The last sip. Not that there is any sort of sound effect with the glass, but I just look. Budget is tight, so I do my own sound effects. All right, uh, let's go to the headline, shall we? With Caitlyn Jenner. Ah, uh, look at this. Uh, Caitlyn Jenner opposes biological males competing in girls' school sports. Quote: It's an issue of fairness. Wait, am I reading that right? Hold on. Wait, that's not comporting. I know Caitlyn Jenner is a Republican. That, though, is not in the transgender liberal line of thinking. Hmm, that seems to be a problem. We'll talk about it in a moment. But first, here is Caitlyn Jenner saying exactly that. It's a question of fairness. That's why I oppose biological boys who are trans competing in girl sports in school. Nothing like the Saturday morning over the weekend conversation with Caitlyn Jenner with the Starbucks uh, coffee in uh, his, her, oh God, am I going to do, see, see, this is the thing, I, you know, I, I know, I know I have to say her, right, but then the, the, you know, the conservative evangelicals are like, no, but it's his, am I going to get in trouble with the pronoun police? I'm going to get in trouble, is there like a pronoun police? Look, all right, let me just keep referring to Caitlyn Jenner. I'll just say Caitlyn Jenner. Look, here's the deal. Okay, uh, Caitlyn Jenner, obviously transgender, but a Republican. So how are liberals going to work this one exactly? You have a Republican candidate potentially for governor. We'll see how it all shakes out, see if it continues to, to kind of move forward. Uh, but, but a Republican governor who's transgender, who doesn't agree with the liberal transgender community on transgender rights in this case as it relates to females and males playing sports together. And by the way, let me just say, not only is that a conundrum and a problem for liberals, let's just be honest. Can, can we have just a frank discussion between you, me, and uh, the camera here? Uh, look, biological males, that's what transgenders competing with female girls, I, I want to be very clear here, okay? 
They are biological males. I'm sorry. You want to send me an email? Send me an email. The water cooler at justthenews.com. I don't care. Jack Dorsey, where are you? They're bio. I'm not angry. I'm, I'm a little hyped up about it. I'm not angry. Look, we're supposed to love one another. Look, I, you know, I, I'm all. Don't get me wrong. But biological males competing against females in sports is downright wrong. It's not fair. Caitlyn Jenner is exactly right. What is so hard about this? This is discriminatory against women. Hello, Democrats. Welcome back to The Water Cooler, everybody. End of the show. Uh, Joe Weber joining us, uh, news editor there, justthenews.com. He knows everything over there. Joe, what's going on over there at the website today? In Washington, they're having a remake of Rebel Without a Cause, it seems. Uh, Liz Cheney, once again, uh, President Trump uh, made a statement about his big lies in the elections, and it didn't take her within minutes to fire back about the fact that anybody that does that is poisoning our democratic system. So as we talked earlier, or last week that was at the um, GOP retreat in Orlando, everybody expected after the very first day the food fight started that uh, something would happen. It didn't, um, but there was some really interesting reporting over the weekend. I would give credit to Scott Wong from The Hill, great reporter uh, there, talking about the fact that um, there's going to likely be another vote. Again, 145 to 61, I think, was the first vote to keep her as a member of leadership. She's a number three in the House Democratic Caucus. But you tell me, Dave, I can't see how this sustains itself. They can't wait till uh, 2021 uh, for her to you know, likely lose in Wyoming. Yeah, I mean, this seems like the handwriting's on the wall. I mean, she, I think she's just saying, look, uh, I know what's coming, so I'm going to go down w- with a fight at this point. Might as well just let it all loose, right? Seems to me that, or one other thing, is that, you know, everyone's placing a bet on where Trump's going to be in four years, and, you know, she's placed her bet is that he won't be relevant and she'll be positioned to be, you know, the anti-Trump candidate. That's the only strategy I can see because this is not a winning one to keep her leadership position, Right. Yeah. Well, is this a smart strategy, though? I mean, I, I can't. I mean, it doesn't seem like MAG, MAG is not only not going away. It seems like it might be getting stronger, at least now it does. Well, it seems to be she's, you know, appears to be poisoning the entire Republican Party to some extent uh, with this, with a very small faction of maybe some reporters. There's a good reporting around even the 61 people in the, um, the House GOP conference who voted to, um, against her are now are like, this is enough. We just have to have some unity. Like I talked about before, and we talked about this is totally stepped on their messages in Orlando. Um, so she's losing support from what little bit of a base that she had. Okay. Well, Joe Weber, appreciate you keeping on track of, or on top of things there at justthenews.com. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Dave, see ya. All right. Joe Weber uh, there uh, from his, uh, I don't know, it's an undisclosed location. Uh, We'll have to figure out what that is uh, at some point. Hey, tomorrow on the show, uh, boy, we've got a a big guest tomorrow, uh, Stephen Miller, uh, of course, a big former Trump aide, uh, now has started his own organization. We'll talk to him uh, about immigration and a lot of news of the day. Also, Roland Martin will be here. So I know, get ready. I'm going to need a good night's sleep. I get it. See y'all tomorrow. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.